Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Good day, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining today's episode of Taneo Insights. I'm Kevin Kajawara in New York City. Jerry Baker is with me today. From 2013 to 2018, he served as editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones. Today, he's the paper's editor-at-large with a weekly column, Free Expression, and he also has a regular column with the Times of London. His long career in journalism has taken him from the BBC to the Financial Times, where, among other positions, he served as Washington bureau chief and chief U.S. commentator, to the Times of London, serving as U.S. editor, to Fox Business, where he hosted Wall Street Journal at Large with Jerry Baker, and he moderated one of the Republican presidential primary debates during the 2016 election cycle, and is the author of a new book, American Breakdown, Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions, and how we can rebuild confidence. Out now from the 12 imprint of Hachette, and I'm happy to have him back on the program. He appears today thanks to the efforts of my colleague and his longtime friend, Chris Waring, Taneo's chief commercial officer. So Jerry, good to see you, and welcome back, and congratulations on the, um, on the book. Well, Kevin, um, it's a great pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, and thank you for those uh, kind remarks. Pleasure. Normally, when I have somebody who's just put out a book, you know, my first question to them is, why did you write this book? But unfortunately, I think um, it's all too obvious um, the relevance of the topic to anybody who's, you know, sort of moderately sentient. So maybe I can pose the question in a, in a slightly different way, which is to talk a little bit about why you decided to tackle this subject. I know also that you, uh, you reference in the book that you know, the sort of breakdown in trust in American institutions was sort of coincident with your arrival in the U.S. I don't think those two things are completely correlated, but, um, but, but, but why you think we've started to see and that this century, the 21st century, has been so characterized by this breakdown in trust. Yeah, I mean, I always like to say things started to go wrong in this country um, almost literally the moment I came here, and uh, so I have to take my share of responsibility for it. But um, actually, there, 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 kind of, there is a personal dimension to the book or to the genesis of the book, and that is, you know, I've been a journalist, as you, you, know, you very kindly laid out at the beginning. I've been a journalist for 30 years, more than 30 years, most of it in the United States. I've been in the United States since the late 1990s, and uh, as, including as editor of the Wall Street Journal, um, and what's obviously been one of the most striking features of journalism over the last 30 years is the collapse of trust that people have in the American news media. Um, and again, I kind of experienced that firsthand. Now, I'm glad to say that the organizations I've worked for, particularly the Financial Times, but also particularly the Wall Street Journal, there are still enjoys high levels of trust. Um, and I think that's because, frankly, we have you know, the highest standards in, in, in news media. But across the board, newspapers, traditional television, cable news, the new digital media, there's just been a precipitous collapse in the trust that people place in what they're reading and seeing and hearing. And that struck me very, it was very much an important part of the way I tackled my job as editor of the Wall Street Journal. It seemed to me the most important thing you have as a journalist really is the trust of your readers. If you lose that, um, you don't, you know, there's no point in what you're doing because if people don't trust what they're, uh, what they're reading, then there's no value in the product that you're giving them. So it, the, the decline in trust in media, and these can be measured as all of the things are in the book, and I'm, I know we're going to talk about them, but as all of these things can be, they're measured, there are these regular opinion polls that Gallup sure. do or Pew do, and they ask people every year, you know, do you trust these institutions? And they cite 15 or 20 institutions. The media is the one that's seen the most dramatic collapse in trust from the late 1990s to today. I mean, in the, the end of the last century, something like 70% of Americans said they broadly trusted what they read in the media. That number's down to about 20% today. So the book came about exactly because I saw that breakdown in trust that had happened to the media, the business that I worked in, and really raising questions about the future of the of the business that I worked in. And then as I looked at it and thought about, you know, writing about the decline in trust in media, it occurred to me as I looked at these data that it was true actually everywhere in all of these institutions, the federal government, the, ju the judiciary, big business, universities, education more generally, big tech, technology companies, they've all seen a, just a precipitate decline in a precipitous decline in in trust over that over that over that last thirty years, and so I thought I wanted to broaden my research and broaden my analysis and see 
that it wasn't just the media, although the media is the most extreme example. What's gone wrong more generally across American society that people don't have trust in these key institutions? Because, and again, I know we'll talk about this, but without trust, you know, a, dem a democracy, a society just can't function if people don't trust the people that lead it, that don't trust the institutions that drive the direction uh, of that society. So that's what that's that's how it came about, and I dug into it, and it, it was clear to me this was a wider problem. Yeah. So for the audience's benefit, I mean, one of the elements of the book is that you kind of take a number of these key institutions, government, corporate America, the media, university, tech platforms, health, et cetera, and you kind of deconstruct. There's, there are reasons why there has been a breakdown in trust in each of these. Right. But why do you think, I mean, contextually, of course, our country, the United States was sort of founded on the basis, as you point out in the book, on a fundamental mistrust of institutions of, of power. But even within that context, um, there's been this kind of precipitous decline that you just referenced, but it's also been sort of concurrent across right. all of these institutions. Right. So why, in your view, kind of as a starting point, before we look at any of these in any depth, like why did it, is it all happening at once? So all of these sense? institutions, exactly as you say, have forfeited trust around the same time. This has been a 30 year, sort of three decade long uh, process and all of these institutions they've all lost trust for, for, for their own individual reasons in some some regards you know it's a famous Leo Tolstoy quote from Anna Karenina you know all happy families are alike in their own way right. uh, unhappy families uh, uh, you know, all unhappy families are, are all unhappy in the same way so it's um, you know so that's what's happened to trust in, in this country that there's been each of these institutions has its own reasons, and we can talk about some of them. Um, you know why people have lost trust in government, poor performance by government, big business scandals, various other things that have happened. But I was looking to see. It was so obvious to me that it became so clear that the broad, the breakdown in trust was so broad, so comprehensive, that it was obviously something beyond just failures or missteps or errors or whatever or, or bad behavior by the people who led these institutions there was something broader going on and so that's what I try to do in the book is to, to try to both explain what's gone wrong with each of these institutions and by the way I think it is important to say and you're absolutely, you're absolutely right Kevin to say you know mistrust as you say has been arguably mistrust in Overly powerful, overly powerful institution, particularly the the English monarchy, was the reason this country was was founded, and ever since, and and the way in which the country's institutions were established, particularly political and civil institutions, they were established, you know, precisely understanding that people, you know, these these institutions could become too powerful. And that that would lead to mistrust, or people wouldn't trust these institutions. That's why we had this whole system of checks and balances, and um, you know, distributed federalism, and sort of distributed power, and everything else. So yeah, m mistrust is actually kind of a fundamental, and I would argue, sort of fun fundamentally healthy American virtue. You don't trust people, uh, you know, trust but verify, as uh, the famous as Ronald Reagan used to say when he was talking about you know relations in the Cold War with with, with the Soviet Union. You don't just trust. You don't just take. People. America is not a particularly high trust society, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. You know, people have got to prove, got to demonstrate to you that they deserve your trust. But when it gets to the point where people just don't, where where people no longer have any basis for trust, and I think this is what's gone wrong in America over the last thirty years, or they that that it's they they there is a broad uh, there are broad social and political changes that undermine trust broadly across across all of these key institutions, then you have a much more serious problem. And you do, again, although mistrust can be healthy, without trust, as I said at the beginning, a society can't can't function. Think about think about who we trust in our lives. We trust we, we our lives operate on the basis of trust. You know, I give the example in the in the book of an airplane. You know, when you right. get on an airplane, you you trust that you know the engineers have inspected that plane properly. You trust that the pilot has not gone on a bender last night and is going to get you safely. You trust that the regulators have regulated the airline properly. You trust that um, you know anybody who's writing about the you know giving giving you know recommendations about airlines. We trust so many people implicitly when we do anything that if that trust starts to break down, if we don't trust. We don't can't be certain that the engineers did the maintenance properly, or that the pilot is not drunk. We can't. We, we stop functioning. We stop using right. the airplane. So, so it applies to all of those institutions too. That if we just lose trust, we just can't function. We can't use those institutions. We can't be led by those institutions in the way that a society needs to be. Just to benchmark for a moment, though, is there a point that you would that you would highlight in the post-war era where 
American trust, trust in American institutions, both by our own populace and by the world in American power um, and how it was wielded. Was there a high point? Yeah, so there, I mean, actually, and we're gonna. I know. One, we'll, I hope we'll talk a little bit about when we talk about you know solutions and, and how we can uh, we can address this. The, one of the one of the one of the pieces of good news uh, in my book and in this whole analysis is that we kind of have been through periods of mistrust before. So there has, you, uh, you know, and I'll answer your question about a high point. But but even in the post-war period, we've had so if you like different peaks. Sure. So people, there were high levels. Now we weren't measuring it all that well before about the 1960s, 70s. But I think the evidence is pretty strong that in the 1950s, levels of trust were pretty high. Now you've had, you know, political issues back then, you know, McCarthy, uh, you know, the McCarthyism and everything else. But you still had, generally speaking, people thought that the media were trustworthy. They thought the universities were, you know, producing the right kind of research or producing the right kind of graduates. We then had a very, trust really collapsed in the 60s and 70s, particularly in the 70s, the Vietnam War, Watergate undermined trust in government. Interestingly, it led to a rise in trust in the media because they trusted the media to having for having told the story correctly. But to answer your question, is broadly speaking, we had a, so we probably had a peak in trust in the 1950s. Then we did have another one in the 1980s, early 90s. I mean, that was you know America, if you like, sort of America at its heyday, um, end of the Cold War. You know, we had the eight years of Reagan's morning in America. The economy was performing incredibly well. Um, the uh, we won the Cold War. We won a hot war uh, against uh, Iraq in the early years of after the after the Cold War in 1991. The country seemed pretty in a pretty comfortable, successful place, um, both politically, economically, and socially. It was reasonably cohesive. So that kind of so so so. And again, going on the measures that that organisations like Gallup givers. All of these institutions sort of hit their high point in terms of trust, roughly in that period of the 1980s, maybe early 1990s, and it was after that that, that, that the decline really began. It's interesting you put it that way. I mean, in many ways, I have, have thought about this, that the presidency of George H.W. Bush was a real high, the way he executed, had, a, had an objective on the first Gulf War, got Russia and China to, to support at the Security Council, the way that they handled the end of the Soviet Union without yep. dancing on the grave, uh, you know, very important to, to Bush, Baker, and Scowcroft. Um, and, you know, and he fell on his political sword um, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, and, and took the hit, essentially. And just, I know you want to move on, but, I think, but that's a really important, I absolutely agree with you. I think that moment, and I would just cite one particular institution of that moment, which really kind of crystallized this, this, this elevation of trust, which was the military. So we all remember, you know, the, the military, again, you go back through the numbers, in, during Vietnam, in particularly in the 1970s, when essentially America lost the Vietnam War and there were all these issues of scandals of My Lai and, you know, the, the controversy of, you know, Americans being seen by many Americans, not all Americans, but Americans being seen as, a, as an aggressor. Trust in the military collapsed in the 19, through the 60s and 70s of the Vietnam War. And then, and, and, and then with, the, with the first Gulf War in 1991 and the astonishing success, the astonishing military success the, the military enjoyed, trust in the military just you know, went higher than it had ever been. So it was interesting that, that even that, that one institution that, that even through the, sort of, through the 80s people were uncertain about managed to establish a real level of trust with the American people, which again was reflected more broadly across all of these institutions too around the time. So when I was reading the book, there are various times, and you, and you mentioned this, and you've just mentioned this now again, that I, I drew some comfort from, which was this point that we have been through periods of extreme distrust in our institutions and frankly even in each other in this country. Um, and you know we have the resilience, we've got the flexibility built into our system to do so. But at the same time, when I think about the time, you know, the sort of the, the, the way you the, the way you illustrate this as having kind of been a, a phenomenon of the 21st century, or the way you're exploring it here, you know, is that what we're going through is something we've never gone through before, right? Which is this period where the United States is calling into question the role it's going to play in the world and whether it's going to be, needs to be, should be the largest economy in the world. Yeah. The role that China is going to play the existential questions, but also the giant economic implications of climate change slash the energy transition, and technological disruption, not talking about the newest technology so much as this fundamental change in the way that institutions of state deal with their populations uh, and interface with them, and that we've never gone through all of this at the same time before. No political leader, no corporate leader, no investor, no nobody has ever gone through that. 
And so talk about this mix of we've been here before versus the we've never been here before element. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, a, it's a really important in terms of understanding where we, you know, where we go from here. So there have been periods of mistrust. Now, of course, we didn't have polling data back really much before the 1960s, so we can't say with great certainty. But we can we can we can we can get the picture from you know, from historical analysis, from things like election results, from certain data, economic data. There, there was clearly there have been periods in American history when trust broadly in major institutions has declined, and trust in each other, trust in Americans, because that's an important part of the book too, looking at mutual mistrust. You know, and the most obvious and dramatic example was the run-up to the Civil War and what resulted in the Civil War in the 1850s. Um, you know, in early 1860s, there was a complete breakdown in mutual trust. There was a breakdown in the trust that half the country had in the major federal institutions. And uh, tragically, of course, that took a civil war to resolve. I don't think that's necessarily what we have to have now, although I think there are disturbing resonances of that period in our current area, which we can talk about. Then I think there was also a tremendous breakdown in trust um, in, in strangely, in the 1930s, I mean, you know, we had the Great Depression, and again, some evidence, some polling evidence suggests that people didn't trust the government. That was restored both by the New Deal and by um, the Second World War. But I think the most dramatic period, and we've sort of already touched on this, where we can measure some significant breakdown in trust was that period of the 1960s, when, I mean, several things were going on the war, which we've talked about, the Vietnam War, but also I think the kind of the, the, the social, dramatic social changes that were going on, the civil rights movements, um, the emergence of, um, you, know, tr you know, tremendous, the, 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 the attempts by leaders to address some of the, you know, the deep-seated social problems, inequalities and racial injustice and those kind of things did surface a lot of concerns about the way in which the country had been headed and where it was headed and led to a significant level of mistrust. I think what happened, and that went through, and then, of course, that was then compounded, as I say, by the failures of the Vietnam War, and then, of course, Watergate, the ultimate moment when people stopped trusting trusting their government, their leaders in particular. I think what that, what, what the lesson of that is that what, the way we came out of that, and and by the way, on top of all of that, period of economic stagnation, we had stagflation, um, you know, low low economic, uh, low weak economic growth, and very high inflation. So, really, a very very, you know, and certainly by objective standards, worse economically and militarily than the United States has been through over the last five or ten years. So, so that, that led to a collapse in trust. And what we saw was the, you know, what was, was the rebuilding of America, Ronald Reagan, um, you know, the success of his presidency, the victory in the Cold War. Um, I think also what happened at then in the 1980s, and I talk about this a lot in the book, in my chapter on sort of politics, politics and government was, and one of the things we lack right now, was clarity. We had, you know, with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 and then his re-election in 1984, the country set itself on a clear path. You know, it rejected the kind of, you know, you know the, the sort of the, the, the sort of Keynesian consensus, if you like, that had gone before. It rejected the sort of the Democrats, the left-wing view that America was not a great country in the world and was actually the Vietnam War was a result of American hubris. And actually said, no, America is a great country. We're facing an existential threat from the Soviet Union. And Reagan was able to unite the country with that huge landslide in 1984 and George H.W. Bush's huge landslide, which people often forget, in 1988. One of the things I think, one of the problems I think we have now that is that is that is preventing us from getting out of this problem we have lack of trust now is we have a really polarized country more polarized you know, obviously not in terms of perhaps in terms of the civil civil disorder that we saw in the 1960s but in terms of political alignment and identification the degree of the degree of polarization is extraordinary right now and it's not just polarization it's not just that people you know are you know increasingly you know, more and more Americans are, are pulling away from the middle ground politically. It's that sort of rather by a kind of a rather that sort of strange happenstance, a sort of misfortune of, you know, statistical freak, if you like. It's evenly divided. We are split down the middle. Election after election results in a 50-50 nation. I mean, you know, can I quote this in the book? And I can't remember the exact numbers, so forgive me. But, you know, I think in the, in the eight elections before 1992, like five of them were decided by essentially what we would call landslides, with the, with the winner getting more than 54% of the vote. We haven't had a single election like that since 1992. You know, Barack Obama won handily in 2008, but that was not by any means like a kind of a landslide. We've had, you know, as we know, we've had two Republican presidents elected without winning a majority of the popular vote. We get these, we are a 50-50 nation. And one of the problems that that produces is an inability 
for, for the country to sort of emerge on a nuclear path out of an election. The losing party says, well, either says, well, we didn't actually lose, we were cheated, which is what we've seen increasingly, and particularly with Donald Trump after 2020, or it says, well, you know, it's, things are so close that we don't really need to sort of fundamentally change, so we'll just wait until the next election. That, is a, that, that level of polarization, and, I, and this obviously I talk about in the book uh, quite a lot, that I think is what is different about this time, and to answer your question directly, that while America has overcome periods of like this in the past where, where Americans' large numbers don't trust their institutions, they've been able to overcome it, again, through political leadership, through changes, through a clear direction given to the nation. We lack that right now, and I think that is a, that is a real problem. Doesn't that bring a chicken and egg element, though, though to this? This 50-50 split that you're talking about is partially a function of the lack of real ideological battle as opposed to just a tribal divide that we seem to be uh, in now. You're either in this camp or you're in, in that camp. Um, irrespective, I mean, you know, Donald Trump was, a, was an ideological you know, mess. I mean, he was all over the place. So you can't say I'm aligned with him perfectly, right? right? Um, so so th this sort of tribalism right. coincides with this decline of trust in, in, in institutions. It's hard to say which influences the other more. And, and if you look at the numbers, one of, one of the problems definitely driving mistrust in the last 20 or 30 years is this polarization, this tribalism, exactly as you describe it, Kevin. Because what you find as you dig through the, the numbers is, while there's been, there has been a broad decline in trust, it, the sharpest decline in trust is, is a partisan divide. So take, for example, I mean, the, most, the, the perfect example is, is public health, right? And science, let's say that. And particularly post-COVID. You find, you know, before COVID, You've got numbers, two thir three quarters of Democrats and almost three quarters of Republicans would say broadly, I have a high level of trust in our public health officials and in you know, you know, scientists. Post-COVID, you have a huge partisan split. You still get about two th thirds, three quarters of Democrats saying I have a high level of trust in public health and science. You get about a third of Republicans now saying that. And, and again, it's, you know, and it, to some extent, it's true of the media. You know, it's not that everybody distrusts all of the media. It's just that, you know, conservatives, Republicans don't trust the mainstream media and Democrats don't trust Fox News. So there is, this, and, and that's absolutely right, we have this, we have this tribalism, which is, which is both feeding and a, and a result of this the polarization that we're having. And as you also say, and I think it's a good point, that it's, not, it's not, I mean, I think, I think that, well, here's where I would disagree with you a little bit. I think, I think it is ideological. Now, it is, you're right, Donald Trump's kind of an ideological hodgepodge, uh, kind of a mix of, uh, of of sort of different sort of ideological traditions. But I think what we are seeing, and this again is one of the central points of the book, and particularly the end of the book, my conclusions, is that I think we have seen the, 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 the ideological divide that we have in this country is essentially between, between elites and populism. So we have, it's quite striking that back in the 1970s and 80s and even 90s, you know, the political divide, the political dividing line was fairly clearly identical between left and right. If you're on the left, you favoured a bigger role for government, higher taxes, you might favour a, you know, um, a kind of a less assertive role for American world affairs or whatever. You know, you'd find a, a higher safety net, more, you know, efforts to resolve inequality, to address inequality. On the right, you favoured smaller government, lower taxes, more free enterprise, a strong role for America overseas. That division has been blurred at best. And we now have instead a kind of division between people who, you know, who, who were both Republican and Democrats, who were on different sides in that traditional ideological war, who kind of now are on the same side, i.e. they're seen by, by many people in the country as elites, whether they are, you know, Mitt Romney on the Republican side or George W. Bush, those, those people are kind of closer together now in terms of the ideological divide. Those kind of what we think of as sort of mainstream political figures, you know, fought their battles pretty fiercely back 20, 30 years ago against the sort of new populist crowd who represent people who are, you know, see themselves as disenfranchised. And Donald Trump and the, especially the populist right of the Republican Party, or to some extent the populist left of the Democratic Party. So, so you're seeing. So I would argue that, and again, I think this is this. It's one. It's this realignment, if you like, you're seeing in politics and the tribalism associated with that, that I think has contributed to a lot of the trust, because it, as it turns out, those elites of both political persuasions as they were in the past, um, were the ones, are the ones who, broadly speaking, have been in control of the major institutions, the permanent government, the media, 
um, you know, the universities certainly, and they have that sort of elite view. And again, I don't want to be too too negative about it, but they have a kind of a they favoured globalisation. They favour strong measures to deal with climate change. Uh, they favour, you know, open more or less open an open approach to immigration. Those so those people who again used to have sort of political divisions between themselves are now on that side and you've got instead as in the last 10 years has grown up this resurgent populism which rejects that rejects those elite positions rejects that consensus and says no 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 we want you know aggressive measures to deal with immigration we are against globalization we want to you know reimpose america first we're against american engagement in the rest of the world so i think it is i think again what i argue in the book is that what's happened and the reason people don't trust is that the people that, who were on both sides of the old political divide are now seen as being the problem by very, very large numbers of people, and therefore they don't trust all of those institutions that they tend to associate them with. So I want to unpack it. There's a bunch of stuff that you just brought up there that I think is worth talking about. But going back to the, to the broader point, as a journalist and as an observer, you know, when you, when you make this point of the different periods in American history where we've had this breakdown in trust, um, something has always gotten us back together. And I think those, those are complex and there's many, many uh, uh, elements of that. But oftentimes there have been real paroxysms of violence that have accompanied this, right. whether in the most extreme case, the Civil War, or we had other outlets like World War II, um, or we had you know, domestic violence like we had in 1968 with pol uh, presidential assassinations and political assassinations and, and, um, uh, and campus violence and the like. How concerned are you, given the environment, this very heated environment that we are in right now, and where a growing percentage of Americans say that violence is a legitimate political expression? Yeah. How concerned are you that we, something could spark yeah, I'm very concerned. I mean, look, when you have a, you have a situation where, you know, and the ultimate, the ultimate breakdown in trust is, and the one that matters most of all, is a breakdown in trust in um, the legitimacy of the, gov of the federal, of the elected federal government. That's been steadily deteriorating, that trust, over the last 20, 30 years. Again, this is obviously part of this broader trend. You know, we've we've had every single president since George W. Even since Bill, so Bill Clinton was impeached. That began really there. George W. Bush won. You know, famously not winning a majority of the popular, uh, not winning, losing the popular vote, winning very narrowly, obviously, and decided by the Supreme Court. A lot of Democrats regarded George W. Bush as illegitimate. So, so he wasn't impeached, but Clinton had been impeached, so his legitimacy was was challenged by half the country. Um, Bush's legitimacy was challenged because they didn't think he'd been fairly elected either in 2000 or many people in 2004. I always remind people when we think about January 6th what happened that actually back in 2004 a very large number of Democrats voted not to certify George, uh, did, refused to certify George W. Bush's election because they accused, accused his campaign of committing electoral fraud. Barack Obama wasn't impeached but again you had this whole campaign by you know, significant numbers of people including by ultimately his successor who claimed he wasn't a legitimate president because he wasn't born in the United States. Donald Trump was impeached. His legitimacy was was challenged because by Hillary Clinton saying she, you know he didn't win the election. Again he lost the popular vote. And then of course we reached this ultimate point in 2020 where Donald Trump, and let me be clear, I'm not I, what, what happened after, Jan after the 2020 election and what Donald Trump uh, allowed to happen on January the 6th was a disgrace and the worst thing we've seen, the worst thing, domestic political crisis we've seen in this country and the worst political offence we've seen in this country, in my view, for at least half a century, probably longer. So it was a terrible thing what happened, shouldn't have done it. But it has been this escalating mistrust um, where neither side really fully accepts the other side's legitimacy. And again, that came to a head uh, in 2020 and on January the 6th. And I fear that it, if people don't accept the result of an election, if they think an election was fraudulent, wrongly decided, illegitimately decided, then it does, in their mind, completely undermine the case, the legitimacy of that government. And therefore, what do they do? You know, so when the government then does things that they don't think it was elected to do, how do they respond? Now, again, fortunately, you're absolutely right. You know, we haven't seen the levels of political violence we saw, particularly in the 1960s and 1968, as you say, especially. Thank God, we haven't had. You know, we've had. We have had some violence. We had the. You know, the 
shooting at the at the baseball, the, the congressional baseball game back in 2017. We've had you know individual assassination attempts against members of Congress. We've had threats against members of the Supreme Court. So it's there bubbling under the surface. I don't think you have to be overly pessimistic or kind of you know histrionic to think that this is a real threat. You have a country, after all, where there are 450 million. Weapon, you know, guns in circulation, more than, you know, more than one for every member of the population. You have rising anger, you have um, rising polarization, rising, um, you know, the, the, the rising, you know, it's not too strong to call it mutual hatred from large numbers of people. And I think there is a, look, again, I'm not, I think we can get through it without an explosion of violence. I do think it, you know, leaders need to be much more, much, much, much more responsible in the way that they speak about it. But I think you can't look at American history, uh, and particularly that history of the 60s, well, again, as you said, we can talk about the, you know, 100 years earlier, the Civil War, without worrying that this is a country that sometimes has to resolve, it, thinks it has to resolve its differences by force, by violence. So can we turn our attention to, to your industry and the role that the, that the media has played in this? Because sort of counterintuitively, right? Like when I was growing up, I'm gonna betray my age here, right? Basically, everybody did the exact same thing. Everybody sat down at 6.30 when they sat down to dinner with their family, and the, the decision was, are you going to watch ABC, right. CBS, or NBC? Right. Are you a Cronkite guy or a Chancellor guy or whatever? Um, and, you know, there were minute differences, but they were all essentially singing from the same, same page. Now we've got this incredibly diverse um, s sources of news um, that are algorithmically designed to send certain news your way, et cetera. Right. Um, I think you, uh, others have made the point, maybe you made the point in the book as well, about how, you know, even something like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, which, you know, in the old days, you know, somebody at midnight or whatever had to say, okay, enough, mm. we have to make a decision, what's going where, but now, Everything, it's, you know, the New York Times becomes more like CNN than the other way around right. uh, in, a, uh, in, in a sense. Um, uh, which is interesting now that they've got one, the leader of the New York Times now going to run CNN. Right. But having right. said that, um, talk about this role. Obviously, your, you know, uh, News Corp and, and Fox have gotten caught up in the Dominion, uh, in the Dominion settlement and so on. Um, media has played its role in not only deconstructing trust in other institutions and actively promoting yeah. that, that, that trust um, or undermining expertise, if yeah. you will, um, and at the same time has suffered a loss of trust itself. So talking about the media's role so here I, and what it can do to get that back or what it needs to do so to that, get it back. Just to give you my take on, the, on what's happened to the media and, and sort of why, why trust has declined so dramatically, there's a comforting mythology that many people in the sort of, I hate the frame mainstream media, but we kind of know what it means, corporate media, we know the big, the big traditional media companies. There's a sort of comforting myth that those people tell themselves, which is that, and you mentioned the, you know, the era of the, you know, Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather and John Chancellor, um, that, that everything, there was a sort of a Garden of Eden um, where everybody trusted the news. The news was told straight as it was, you know, whether it was those guys on the you know, 6 o'clock, 6.30 evening news, or whether it was the front page of the New York Times. This was the truth. This was the objective truth. It was, they were called the voice of God, um, uh, those, some of those anchors. Um, and, you know, everybody believed it. Everybody trusted it. It was great. And then something happened. Along came Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and you know, these wicked people who came into the Garden of Eden and destroyed this beautiful scenario with their lies and their falsehoods and their things that, and that created mistrust and that created rivals like MSNBC or, you know, and it pushed everybody to extremes and no longer, no longer anybody any trust. Well, I think that is a complete mythology. The problem is the media was always biased in a particular direction. Those main, and even those, you know, the, those three, you know, the, the three great even nightly news shows in the 1970s and 80s, you know, they, they were, they followed an agenda that was essentially one that was, um, you know, the agenda of, if you like, kind of metropolitan elites. Again, I don't want to overstate it, and I don't want to sound like a kind of, um, you know, like a raving sort of, you know, you know, ranting right winger. But the reality was, those that, that was that the agenda was biased in that direction, and it got steadily worse. And I talk a little bit about how this happened. I think part of it was to do with the demographics of the media business when. 
know, the news business went from the 1950s and 1960s to be, being largely done by people who just wanted to find out the news, report. They were reporters. They often hadn't been to university. They were good, hard-working reporters who just wanted to find out the truth. To beginning in the sort of 60s and 70s, accelerated by Watergate and what happened with Watergate, people, journalists wanted to change the world. They didn't want to just tell people what happened. They wanted to tell people how to think. They'd all been to very smart universities, expensive universities, Ivy League and everything else. They became these figures who wanted to be great influencers. And given their background and the kind of places they went, they generally thought alike and they believed whether it was on, you know, the role of government, whether it was on social issues like abortion or gun control, they all thought in the same direction, which was largely what we would call a sort of progressive left direction. And so Fox News, if you want, if you want Rush Limbaugh used to criticize that, attack that, drive by media in the 1980s, and he gained traction. And then along came Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes in 1996 with Fox News, and who realized that a large number of Americans felt increasingly unrepresented by the media that they had, those the media that we've just talked about because they were unrepresented by them, because that media pursued a particular line, Murdoch and Ailes came along and thought, well, we're going to produce something that is actually, you know, they called it fair and balanced, but was something that was more appealing to that audience. Um, there's, you know, the famous joke is that, you know, Murdoch and Ailes thought they'd identified a niche in the market and the niche turned out to be more than 50%. And sure enough, so, so, so that's what happened. It was that the media was already failing its viewers and listeners and read, readers, and along came alternatives. And then, of course, with the internet, which came along pretty much straight after Fox News, you then had the opportunity for this explosion of voices and this range of voices that you have today. Now, I do accept that what that means is we now have a highly partisan media where if you're a conservative, you watch Fox News or you like the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. If you're a liberal, you watch CNN or MSNBC and you like the New York Times or whatever. And you don't really get exposed to alternative voices. And that is a problem, I think, for rebuilding trust. I will say, again, and you know, not to sort of sound the sort of sound like the, the historic the, the old man of history kind of voice, but we have been here before again. I mean, in the early days of the Republic, America had a highly partisan media. It's reflected in the names of the newspapers we still have today, like Arkansas Democrat Gazette. They were identified as being on, on, on one side or other of the political divide. So, it's, so we've been through this before. I think I'm optimistic that there will be, um, and again, some of it is going to have to be dealt with. Some of it, the media is going to have to address these, these issues themselves. The media has, A, been, much of the media has been going in this direction for many, many years now. It was accelerated by the election of Donald Trump in 2016 when, let's, I'll be perfectly honest with you, kind of like the, the, the mainstream media, again, for want of a better term, kind of went mad. They went mad with the election of Donald Trump. They actually thought, I had serious people, and I quote this in the book, people including people in my own organization when I was editor of the Wall Street Journal who came to me after Donald Trump's election and said, you know, this is now Germany 1933. Uh, Adolf Hitler's just been elected chancellor. Donald Trump's just been elected president. This is a state of emergency. This is a national crisis. We no longer have an obligation to tell people what's going on. We've got to save the country. We've got to save the country from Donald Trump. I thought, A, I thought that was just wrong analytically, but B, I thought even if you thought the country needed saving from Donald Trump, it wasn't going to be the New York Times or, dare I say, in the Wall Street Journal that was going to do it. So the media lost its mind kind of collectively uh, with the election of Donald Trump. It, so it, that, it needs to, I think there's been a recognition, a little bit of a recognition of that. And by the way, that was accelerated by 2020 and the George Floyd stuff and kind of some of the insanity we saw with the Black Lives Matter movement. I think there's been a, there is a slow recognition that it has gone too far on both sides and that the partisanship has gone too far. And so I think there, there will be an attempt to rebuild some of the objectivity in news. But secondly, I think there will be a demand for it. I think, I think actually, I think one of the strange paradoxes of this country is that even as the extremes have driven this polarization over the last 20 years or so, there's still a solid, solid group of Americans in the middle who don't, who aren't particularly extreme, who don't think that, you know, there is an existential threat to the country in the form of, I don't know, drag queen story hour or, you know, Donald Trump's latest tweet or posting on Truth Social, who want the country, who, who are interested in facts, who want the truth, and I think are going to demand it. That's what happened, by the way, when the media turned away from being hyper-partisan in the 19th century. There was just a demand. People needed, as they grew 
more prosperous, as they needed more information to live their lives, they demanded information that was going to be genuinely helpful to them, not something that would sort of appeal to them emotionally. And I think we're going to get back into, uh, maybe that's just an optimistic hope, uh, an unfounded piece of optimism, but I think we're going to get back in that direction. So can I push you a little bit on this? Because I do wonder, when you say that the aftermath of the 2020 election, culminating in January 6th, and Trump's culpability in that period, um, was one of the worst things that has happened politically in this country in the last half century, if not, if not longer. Given that, wasn't the media right to kind of highlight the dangers that he, that he represented potentially? And, and if that's the case, or regardless, if we acknowledge that he has a very real chance of getting reelected um, and has already essentially indicated that this will be the Donald Trump grievance tour if he's reelected. He will weaponize the Justice Department. He will uh, eliminate many of the, uh, or there will be a political litmus test to be a civil servant in this country, et cetera. You know, um, how dangerous is that? Well, so I, there I'm going to probably have to disagree with you a bit. So okay. firstly, on... You know, was was the media right? Uh, was the media proved right by what happened on January sixth? I mean, not really. The fact that Trump behaved disgracefully after the twenty twenty election did not retroactively justify the stories that were legion in the American media for two years that he was a Russian agent, um, which is what we were told. I mean, let's 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 be clear about it that he was a Russian agent and that he was only elected because uh, Vladimir Putin helped him get elected. And you know, there was there was the Russia collusion story. So no, it doesn't it doesn't retrospectively. If I if, if I'm accused of robbing a bank today and it's not true, and then um, you know someday down the road I you know uh, I commit fraud or whatever, it doesn't make. Because I've committed fraud on that occasion, it doesn't mean that they were, you were right all along to accuse me of robbing, robbing the bank in the first place. So that doesn't really justify it. And secondly, I would say, look, and again, uh, this is not particularly sort of a, you know, an ideological discussion, but I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's. I do think what he did on January 6th was disqualifying. I think he should have been, he was in, he should have been impeached. If he was impeached, should have been convicted, shouldn't have been able to run for office again. But uh, let me just say, you know, in, in response to your point about you know, what would another Trump presidency look like, um, you talk about the weaponization of the Justice Department. Well, you know, I think, unfortunately, we've seen the, some of that uh, under the Biden administration, and, you know, both in terms of going after, um, you know, certain political opponents, which they clearly have done. Um, I think and you could even argue, and again, don't get me wrong, I, I, I don't know how I can keep overstressing how much of a fan, not a fan of Donald Trump's I am, but I am concerned about some of these lawsuits against him. I think they're overzealous prosecutors, including including the at the federal level. Um, you talk about, you know, remaking the permanent government. Well, the permanent government, there is no, again, you can look back on what Trump did in his four years as president, and he was thwarted again and again, either directly by permanent government officials who oppose what he did, or by this constant barrage of leaks intended to damage him and intended to un undermine him. So, again, I, I'm, I'm not a fan, but I have some sympathy with the idea that actually there, this is part, again, this goes back to the point about trust in, in the federal government, that there, has, there was an institutional attempt to stop Donald Trump uh, after all he had been elected president legitimately in 2016, uh, in 2016. There was an institutional attempt to stop him from doing what he's doing and things like the weaponization of justice, I'm sorry to say, and by the way, you saw it to some extent with, you know, uh, even under Obama with, with going after, with, with, with prosecuting journalists uh, over, over certain things. You know, that, again, Trump, as with Trump, Trump always makes things, Trump always goes further than everybody's gone before. But the, the ground has already been laid there. And I think that is, that's, the, that's the core problem that we already have. So we could go on on this all yeah, day. Yeah. Uh, but I, I want to pivot because of, uh, to another institution that's of kind of very you know, important interest to our uh, our audience, which is the the decline of trust in corporate America and in the corporation and in corporate leadership, um, at at a at a time when there's also been extraordinary uh, innovation, um, extraordinary wealth created, um, you know, and and again we're at you know all time high employment levels. Um, talk about 
what's happened on that front and how that connects in with everything you've been talking about. So, so again, far. so the, the data are pretty clear. There's been a dramatic decline in trust in, in big business. Interestingly, not small business, and we could talk about that, but, but big small business. Small business and the military. And the military, the two, yeah, two, yeah, two institutions right. that have not seen a decline in trust. But big business, big decline in trust from you know well over 50% to 30 years ago to around 30% today. And I, I attribute that to three main things, I think. Firstly, succession of corporate scandals, um, which pe where people saw whether it was you know Enron, at WorldCom, I mean, I cite these in the book, um, you know, Bernie Madoff, financials and economics, Theranos, um, um, most recently, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTA. There's been a, over the year, you know, there's always been corporate scandals in American issues, nothing new, but there was a succession beginning, you know, around this period, beginning around 2000 and going on right through up to today, that I think made a lot of people think, you know, actually, you know, of course, most American businesses are well run and properly run, and you know, uh, and 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 not uh, and, and not corrupt. But there was a large number that really raised doubts about the integrity of a lot of people in corporate America. So that was the first thing. The second thing, I think, and I would argue this is probably the most important, and I most important contributor, perhaps overall as well, beyond what we've talked about to the decline in trust generally, is this massive growth in inequality. I think this is a huge problem, and again, this sort of cro crosses party lines politically to some extent. I think by any measure, you look at income and wealth inequality in America over the last 30, 40 years, it's exploded, right? You, my favorite data point is, you know, back in the 1970s or whatever it was, the average CEO had a, you know, um, had a com total compensation that was around 25 times the average employee of that. It's now over 300, 400, time, 400 times. Now, again, I'm not saying that's unjustified, and you know, a lot of your audience hire CEOs, and they'll bridle and say, I deserve every penny of my $28 million uh, compensation every year. Quite possibly, I accept that. But I don't think you could argue that um, the decline, that the, the, the um, the, the, this increase, this dramatic increase in, in, in inequality has, has not contributed to declining trust, not just in corporations, but in the system. And I think that's, that's one of the key things here. One of the, one of the interesting things that, you know, I talk about that the, the, the data represent, the polling represents, and I talk about this in the book, is people have lost faith in America, in the American dream, in the, American, the very idea of the American economy. You know, people you know, for years and years and years believe that their children would have a better standard of living than they do. For the last 20 years, Americans say, by a large margin, they don't think their children have a better opportunity. And I think this is tied in with the problem with corporate America because they see these incredibly successful people, um, you know, who've done extraordinarily well for themselves and, by the way, for their family because, you know, they can buy themselves places at the best universities and give them incredible opportunities. And they say, this is an increasingly exclusive club that I can't get into, whereas I used to be able to, you know, Build a business, or work hard, or be talented, or you know, even get a bit lucky. I could break. I could. I could have a very. I wasn't going to be a CEO. Not everybody's going to be a CEO. But I could have a really good life too. For many, many Americans, they don't see that now. So I think the rising inequality has contributed to that. And the third thing, frankly, uh, and this again is very much true over the last five years or so, is the kind of the, is the growth of the, the so-called the woke corporation, and the increasing politicization of the corporations, whether it's through things like ESG. Um, or whether it's through a more direct um, embrace of political causes, like again in the wake of Black Lives Matter, the way in which so many corporations uh, took political stances there in ways that were not necessarily aligned with many of their customers. And I think people saw these institutions, and particularly I think they were worried about, well, they were alarmed indeed, appalled by some of the hypocrisy that they saw. Because on the one hand, companies would come out and say, America's systemically racist, terrible injustice in this country, uh, all hire huge numbers of diversity, equity, inclusion officers to address the terrible systemic racism and inequalities in the country. And then they go to China and they do business in China and they'd say, what a wonderful country China, what a wonderful country China is. And they'd be out there sort of, you know, simply shilling for business in China without criticizing China, which I think we can probably all agree is by any measure a fundamentally much, 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 much less fair society in any general sense of the term than the United States. And they go there. So I think, so I think it's those three things. I think it is a succession of scandals. I think it's the growth in inequality and the sense of increasing alienation that many, many ordinary Americans feel from successful businesses. And it's the growth of, of, of sort of wokery, uh, you know, the woke, the woke corporation and woke, woke political, woke business leadership that I think has led to a big breakdown in trust in corporations. You know, related too. to that last point that you just made about, it, 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 
I sit here at Teneo, which as you know, a lot of what this firm does is, is kind of crisis management and crisis communications mm -hmm. for some of America's largest companies. Um, and so I've sat through my fair share of crises that have been generated externally or by the, 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 the companies themselves. Um, we are in the midst right now of the situation with Israel and Hamas um, and the taking of sides, pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian, um, pro which some people are conflating with Hamas. I have never seen, th th this is where all of this has kind of come right, right. And, and companies have found themselves tied in knots over how to, right. uh, how, how to deal with this situation. Um, no, they're victims of their own, exactly. they're hoist with their own petardery. Because again, I mean, I sympathize and I do understand, but I, and I've had similar conversations too with chief executives or, or senior people at different companies. And yeah, they're like, you know, what do we do? Well, actually the, the problem and, and what they're being attacked for, many of them, understandably, not necessarily justifiably, but understandably, again, they kind of, most of them, large numbers of them, I'm sure, including many of your clients, very eagerly jumped on the bandwagon of, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and how to, after the terrible George, George Floyd killing and the, the, up, the, un, the unrest we saw in this country. Yes, America was, you know, came out, you know, f you know, again, flying their Black Lives Matter flags and making their state their public statements denouncing systemic racism um, and saying what a terrible you know terrible thing white supremacy was and addressing it and then you know you get an episode uh, obviously the, the extraordinary things the terrible thing that that happened with Hamas attacking Israel and they're silent there's silence right so once you're out this is the problem here with the whole yeah. you know the politicization of these issues once you're out there there's no reason why, actually, if you think about it objectively, there's no particular reason why a company should take a position, even on something as appalling as what Hamas did. It's not, if you're selling toothpaste, you don't have to be out there saying, actually, I Except don't... Except that we don't, you know. said something about everything exactly. else. Exactly, you've said something and about so everything else. So you don't you're, now. You're then a, if you don't right. now, yeah. you're, you're deemed to be itself. essentially yeah. complicit in the, in the terrorism. The other, you, you, the other two elements of your argument here with regards to corporate scandal um, and inequality. It seems to me that one of the things that has also angered a lot of, uh, a lot of America is the lack of um, accountability. So for instance, you have the global financial crisis and nobody goes to jail right. essentially. And right. yet the American middle class paid and continues to pay right. a, very big, uh, a very big price for it. But then we get caught into this kind of Kafka-esque sort of, you know, circular, I mean, you know, um, therefore, we should have better regulation, but we don't trust government to regulate. Right. So, therefore, what do you do? Yeah, it's a fair point. How do we and stay I, out of our way? And I do agree. By the way, and I didn't. I, I think. I think the. I, I think. I don't think we fully understood at the time, and I think we're probably still getting to grips with it. But I do think the two thousand eight financial crisis was absolutely central to so many of the political sort of pathologies that we're seeing today, because I really think. Exactly as you described, Kevin, it sowed these doubts, these suspicions, these um, this this mistrust that yeah, exactly. You can crash the world economy. You can you know put millions of Americans out of work. You can reduce the value of people's homes, basically make forcing them to lose their homes because they can't afford their mortgage or their mortgage is way larger than the value of their home. And what's what's the reckoning? What happened? As you say, now I don't know whether people should go to jail or whatever. That's you know, did anybody break the criminal law? There may have been some, maybe there shouldn't have been. But there certainly was a gen. There's certainly a reasonable sense that people have that there should have been a better, a more of a reckoning. They look yeah. now and they see these banks that did these things. I mean, not necessarily the individuals, but the banks are bigger than ever. The financial markets seem to be, you know, boy, not immediately buoyant, but they seem to be, you know, lots of people earning lots and lots of money working for financial institutions, and they feel there's something really fundamentally wrong there. I think, look. I think, and you're right, what, and, then, and then, you know, do you trust government to regulate? I think one of the problems, and again, relates to the corporate uh, thing, I do think, and I really believe this, and again, a lot of your um, viewers and listeners here to this will, be, will not, not agree with me, be horrified to see it, but I think the problem, I think crony capitalism is a reality in this country, and I think the amount of money, one of the again, things, again, I talk about in the book is I think one of the reasons business has lost trust is because of the massive concentration of industry by, by sector that we've seen over the last 25 years. You know, we now have the major sectors in the American economy 
almost all of them are dominated by a handful of firms. Um, you know, now again, there isn't necessarily collusion or price fixing, and there, although we are seeing some interesting antitrust measures being taken by this administration, but there's no question that choice, consumer choice, has been constrained and has shrunk. And I think people feel, and again, this is directly contributing to the fact that companies, uh, you know, the, 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 the growth of the capital share of the economy against the labor share of the economy is directly, a, is at least in part directly a function of that. So I think that, you know, and, and, and the, 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 I think what many people believe, and I think they're right to believe it, is that um, the companies then grow incredibly strong. They have these incredibly strong market positions brought about by mergers and acquisitions and a, a huge market share that limits the amount of competition in the market. And then they cement that position or they cement their favorable position by spending millions and millions of dollars in Washington or in, or in state and local governments and, and improving their, and, and making sure that the outcome of regulation or legislation is favorable to them. That is a reality, I think. That when, and that is, that is crony capitalism. And that's another yeah. reason people, and that leads to mistrust both in government and in big business, because they think the two are in cahoots. The corporation doesn't have a vote, per se, but they have an enormous voice. Right. Okay, I want to spend the last several minutes we've got to talk about how we get out of this. Right. Your kind of, you know, the, the, the last part of the subtitle is how we can be rebuild confidence. So let's talk about that. But before I do, um, I want to bring up an element that a former guest, Richard Haas, former head of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, has been on here several times. and wrote a recent book called The Bill of Obligations. And right. this is what talking about that, you know, Americans, we, we tend to think all about our rights and very often, rarely about our obligation, yeah. our obligation to be an informed citizen that goes out and votes. Yeah. Democracy is delicate and it requires participation. It requires informed participation. Um, and, you know, and then how we exercise our, in our lives. We trust small businesses, but my gosh, it's raining outside. So you know what? I'm going to call. I'm going to order from Amazon rather right. than going down the street. Or I could go down to the, you know, the family-owned movie theater down the street. But ah, let's just do it on Netflix. Not to pick on those two in particular, but yeah. that's the that's the thinking, right? We 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 want all of the conveniences yeah. in 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 a sense. So, what about the role of the American citizen, American voter, in getting all of this back? That it's not just simply the institutions. It's like we have voted, yeah. either politically or with our dollars or what have you, for the system that we've got. Of course, and of course, although it is interesting, actually, turnout has been increasing in presidential elections in particular, and even in midterm elections and state elections that we've seen over the last few years. So to some extent, people are, are kind of voting literally with their feet, as it were. I, I'd, I'd sort of turn the question a little bit in terms of looking at solutions. I, one of the, the things I think we haven't talked about this in this conversation uh, really, but I think one of the contributing factors to a sense of mistrust needs to be understood in terms of the broader kind of social change, the social psychology changes that we've seen in this country in the last 20 years, in particular the growth of technology, personal technology. You just talked about it there with people sitting at home and ordering, you know, something on Amazon or whatever. I think one of the reasons that is that we become more atomized as a society, which leads to mistrust, is because we become so much more focused on our we've been able to do so much more um you know simply through through our screens through our computers through our smartphones uh whatever and there's a lot of work now that's been done studying the kind of psychological impact that this has had and the way it's leading to terrible outcomes in terms of what happened what's happening with teenagers and their kind of the way their brain works and the way their self uh, image works but i think more broadly we are seeing this breakdown technology-driven breakdown in so tr traditional social institutions. Um, someone, of course, Kaplan, Robert Kaplan wrote a famous book back around 20 years ago called Bowling Alone, and it was about how Americans are increasingly still going out bowling, but they weren't taking part in bowling leagues anymore. And that he attributed that to the growth of television, in particular cable television. Um, people was, you know, had such choice of TV that they'd stay home and they were, they were fixed. That's got dramatically worse in the last 20 years. And we, this problem, this phenomenon of atomization. And I think part of the solution, therefore, is we have to, it has to be understood holistically that we have to try to address this real scourge. And look, I don't want to overstate it. We all benefit enormously from technology. I'm a addicted to my phone probably more than anybody, so I'm a complete hypocrite and talking in these terms. You know, we all use this technology, it's magnificently transformed our lives in ways that we just, you know, we would never give up. But I think part of part of restoring trust in the country and its institutions and each other is going to be about finding ways to re 
re-incentivize or just to, to, to re, um, you know, to, 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 to revive social interaction and get people actually speaking to each other. And I think this is really true, Kevin, in terms of like uh, polarization. I see this as a journalist all the time. I, I if I, it, it's if I write an article, I do write articles every week. Um, you know, people will abuse me online, whether it's on social media or on the Wall Street Journal website or wherever. We, we moderate the content on the journal website so they can't abuse me too uh, offensively, but, but they can go take, take to social media and throw all kinds of abuse at me. And they could do that because it's kind of, because there's a distance involved. There's no direct, it's anonymous. they'd never say it to me in the street, right, you know, you, were, you know, I hope you, you know, I hope you, you know, you hope you die of cancer or something like that, but which I do, the kind of comment I do get on social media. But, you know, we need to find ways in which pe people come together personally uh, again, because People, because this is in, these these devices are empowering people to be antisocial fundamentally, and and I also think it's connected. I think the technology problem is connected to another problem, which I think we have to address in terms of repairing the breakdown, which is the problem of remoteness and bigness. I, I, you know, I think people feel we are. And this also goes back a little bit to what I was saying about corporate America being dominated by big companies. People feel disempowered by the fact that they. We've got you know, a distant, big, a growing federal government. Federal government has grown enormously, particularly after 9-11. Um, we've got these huge companies that have grown enormously and have taken up a larger and larger market share. We've got this whole phenomenon of technology, which again, even as it's empowered us, has made us feel more remote from them. And again, back to the point we talked about earlier, one, one institution that has seen a, a rise in trust in the last 20 years is small business. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's also true, by the way, if you ask people, you know, do they trust Congress? They say, I don't trust Congress. Do you trust your local congressman? Yes, they do. So the more direct interaction, the more control you give people over their immediate lives, the more sense that they are the accountability, you create a sense of accountability between the institutions they're dealing with and the people who are these institutions are governing or selling products to or working with, I think the more we can rebuild trust. Now that, how do we do that? Well, it might involve devolution, it might you know, create, you know, breaking up big companies, all the, all the kinds of things that people talk about. But I do think part of the answer is, is, is replacing the bigness of the modern world with more accessibility, uh, more, um, uh, you know, more intimacy and more accountability. Yeah, I mean, my final question, I guess, is to that point. Um, the solutions all sound not just reasonable, but almost like what must happen. But at the end of the day, what catalyzes that? I mean, do we need an enemy? Do we need a, you know, Nazi Germany, a Soviet Union, and Al-Qaeda, I mean, you brought up the point of President Bush's, you know, the legitimacy, the legitimacy around uh, the year 2000 election, and yet he was reelected in 2004, you know, um, and, 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 uh, and, and had 90 plus percent approval rating in the months after 9-11. Uh, right. So that can galvanize uh, people, but nobody wants to go through any right. of those things, obviously. So how do we catalyze this, this change considering the breadth of the problem that you've, you know, described. So yeah, I mean, put it bluntly, war is one. You know, ex dealing with an external threat is one. I mean, we saw it again. If you look at the periods that we've talked about, where there was a breakdown in trust. I mean, the eighteen uh, the eighteen fifties ended in the civil war. That was a, that was a domestic war, and that had to be resolved that way. The there was a big breakdown in trust in the nineteen twenties and thirties, particularly, and that that resulted that 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 was ended largely by the Second World War. Nineteen sixties, you know, war helped to create the mistrust, that was the Vietnam War, but you could argue that the Cold War and the particular, you know, the, the, in many ways the kind of peak of the Cold War was when Reagan came to power. And that it was winnable. And it was winnable, exactly, and we won that Cold War and that helped bring the kind, and we decisively won that Cold War. For, visibly, the fall of the Berlin Wall and everything we saw was a validation and a vindication of, of America. So that, you know, so yes, an external threat, Dealing with external threat, as you said, 9-11 um, created a huge outpouring of you know, national unity. I worry a little bit, I have to say, whether if we had another 9-11, whether we would get the same result. I mean, or would we have half the country saying that's the fault of the incumbent administration? I mean, we had some of that in remember 9-11, but it was a very small, marginal um, part of the debate. I think it would be much more central now if, you know, God forbid, there was some major terrorist attack on American city or... China, you know, attacked us in some way. I, I worry that, you know, we'd have a large, large part of the country that would say, 
Um, actually, that's a fate that shows how bad the, uh, my, my political opponents are. But I think, yeah, but it is it has historically been true that, 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 that an external threat does help to bring the country together. And I think, you know, as we enter, as we are, I'm, you know, I'm not, you, Kevin, you study a lot of this, the, the geopolitics uh, of this too. I'm not, I, I'm not too pessimistic about the global situation. I don't think worldwide conflict a la World War One and World War Two is likely anytime soon. But I do think we are in kind of Cold War 2.0. And I think that, again, I, I don't want to say, hey, isn't this great? We're in Cold War 2.0 because I think it'll bring the country together. But I think, that will, I think that will help contribute. I think that could be one of the catalysts. And I think also, I think, think, I think internally we are going to look at particularly things like technology. There's going to be a, there is a rising backlash. And again, I don't want to overstate it. We all benefit from technology. But there is clearly a rising backlash against some of these you know, deleterious effects of technology. And I have a feeling that that, you know, there might there will be a catalyzing event, and I don't know what it will be, where people will say, you know, we're losing our children or we're losing the soul of our country and something's got to be done. And by the way, one final point, I'll just end on this too. The other great thing that America's been able to do, and the reason I'm fundamentally optimistic, is leadership. And I think one of the problems we've had in this country in the last 20 years is very poor leadership. Um, you know, when 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 whether it's Abraham Lincoln, if you look at those great points of crisis in the country, Abraham Lincoln, FDR, Ronald Reagan, we were able to unite around those leaders who led us out of these problems. For the last, I'm sorry to say, and I absolutely include presidents, political leaders of both parties in this, we've had very, very poor political leadership, partisan, polarizing, small-minded, um, you know, not up to the challenges of the day. And I think, and this may be just a, a forlorn hope, but I don't think it is. I think America's capable of better. And I, have, I do strongly think that, and I don't think the choice that's on offer to the American people right now is a very good one, but I'm optimistic that we will create leaders who will actually be able to articulate and uh, enunciate a vision that actually enables, that brings the country together and generates much more trust uh, in the country's institutions and in its leadership. It may have been apocryphal, but I believe it was Winston Churchill who said America can always be counted on to do the right thing after it exhausts all other possibilities. But Jerry Baker's new book is American Breakdown. Um, it's not the most cheerful read, except for the fact, as Jerry just points out, we have a system that has had the built-in flexibility um, to, to, to change incentives and get us out of these situations right. and the better, better for it. And I right. think you point that out uh, in the conclusions of the book as well. So. Jerry, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Pre Appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at Taneo Insights at Taneo.com. See you next time.